With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Perpetual Chess, Chess Books Recaptured, a monthly podcast where we get together with someone from the chess community and talk about a great chess book. Uh, And joining me this month to talk about Judith Polgar's How I Beat Fisher's Record is the two-time U.S. Women's Champion, a Poker Stars ambassador, the host of the award-winning podcast, Ladies Night and the Grid. She now has a Twitch channel, uh, the Women's Program Director of U.S. Chess and uh, U.S. Chess Women, and now she's running Zoom classes for girls on U.S. Chess. She has been a guest on Perpetual Chess, and of course, her biggest honor of all, she is my friend. Uh, and let's bring her in, Jen Shahadi. How's it going, Jen? Hey, Ben. Good to be on the show again. Yeah, thank you for volunteering. It was um, I was pleasantly surprised when you um, when you um, uh, um, offered to come on and uh, discuss this great book because I know you're super busy. Well, thank you. But yeah, this the reason I love your concept of the chess books recaptured. And I'm, of course, I'm a fan and supporter of Perpetual Podcast, but I'm especially a fan of this, um, this segment, because I think that it's really hard to read chess books. The cliche is that it's so much easier to buy them than it is to read them. Uh, probably about 20 times better, easier, if you ask me. I, I would, I, I'm running the math, I'd say. Yeah, maybe. exactly. I'm there with you. 20 books bought for each one read. Um, but that said, uh, this podcast that you're doing, it really, it's like a motivation. It's like, uh, I feel like it's kind of like this listening party. Like you feel like not only are you reading a book, which might be um, a, an indulgent thing to do, but you're also participating in this community reading of it. And then you get to listen to yourself and an expert talk about it. So I just, I, I think the concept is really brilliant, specifically with chess books. 
Yeah, it seems to work pretty well. And thank you. Yeah, I'm I've been happy with it as well. I mean, like like we were just talking about before we recording started recording time is the only irreplaceable resource and there's so many chess books we'd like to read but so little time so whether a listener ends up actually reading the book or just sort of taking this as a synopsis um both i think are uh reasonable things to do um so jen once you did uh graciously volunteer to help me out this month uh, we talked about what book you might do, and we pretty quickly landed on Judith Polgar's How I Beat Fisher's Record. So could you talk a little bit about your experience with this book? Yeah, well, of course, when I was um, playing chess, I when I was starting to get good at chess, in particular, Judith Polgar was a huge hero, and I would always like scour the magazines for any games of hers. And at the time, I was studying a lot of chess. I was in luck because you know she was usually playing in all the elite events. And then also, um, I remember that there was this book about her by a writer, Kathy Forbes, um, and it was called The Polgar Sisters, Training or Genius. It was it was written in 1992, so as we'll get into soon after one, you know, ar- arguably her very most historic accomplishment, which was beating Bobby Fischer's record to be the youngest grandmaster of all time. Um, and this book was, you know, very, um, it was rather short. I would say, and it was an unauthorized book. So there was no quotes or anything from the Volgar sisters. But that said, I just must have read it like 50 times. Wow. Like I I I was I I read it so many times and so so much that when I read this book, the fantastically written book by Judah Polgar in 2012, like it felt almost like I was a lot of the games, like especially the ones because the the in the first volume, it it takes us through 1991. Um, it felt like I had seen a lot of them before because they were imprinted in my memory. So there was a great nostalgia from going through this book. Okay, I had read the Kathy Forbes book sometimes in the 90s. As yeah, and you mentioned it being unauthorized. As I recall, the Polgars were not were not thrilled with that book. Although I don't remember it being overtly negative. What, what are you having read it more times than I have? What what was your overall impression of that book, Jen? I thought it was mostly positive, um, but it did it did kind of dig deep maybe into some personal things like, you know, wh- how, whether they were um, pushed too hard, you know, it, maybe things about, you know, their appearances and just stuff that maybe was a, a little awkward, but more sensationalistic stuff too, like about how people reacted to them and, you know, conjecture since you didn't get the interviews with them. No, I, it's, not, I, it's not like I reread it before this interview. Yeah, yeah, so, it's been a while. Yeah, so it, it that, to me, it was mostly like I was just reading it for the games and the stories of how the sisters did. So to me, it was really inspiring. You know, I mean, I loved having that kind of narrative and I was, but it wasn't about me. If I, I can imagine if somebody writes a book about you, you're more on the lookout for like, all of the things, the gossip they say about you. For me, I mostly just zoned that out and was like looking for the next incredible tactic that Judah played when she was like 11. Yeah, and man, we will get to that. She has such amazing tactics, even even as a little girl. Um, but, but before we dig in deeper to the book, but I'm also sure there are listeners wondering how you and Fabi and the family are holding up during quarantine times. Oh, we're doing pretty well considering... Um, my son is doing exceptionally well considering that he's, you know, in the city and not, not really getting to go on play dates or go to parks, but he still seems really happy. So 
that's flattering. I guess you really like sauce. How long is that going to last? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but uh, um, me, I'm I'm working a lot. I mean, in the beginning, it was almost a little bit relaxing because all my trips were canceled, and of course, I was very sad about that and sad about what was happening in the world. But it also felt like um, I had a little bit of this short period where um, I was maybe working a little bit less, but picking up some projects and ideas that I hadn't in a while. But then as um, time went on, um, new exciting projects keep popping up. So now it's actually super busy, as I'm sure people in the chess world are well aware of because they see everything that's happening. And what that means is that unlike a lot of people, chess players and my and my other sideline, of course, poker, I the practitioners and the content creators are just massively busy. They've got so many opportunities, which is not really something to complain about because it's far, far better. And we're very fortunate that we're not experiencing the unemployment or underemployment that so many industries are. But I do notice that um, there is that risk of burnout for chess players. So I, I would encourage people listening to make sure that you know, you're, you're getting some balance, uh, as it can be difficult. Like I started a Twitch channel, which gave me a lot of insight actually into that sphere. Like I'd always been a little bit into it because I would watch and I would like read about it and I would watch some streamers and, you know, for the last six months, us chess women has been doing various partnerships in particular with, uh, the Botez live channel. So I had a, a more than working knowledge of, Twitch and the ins and outs, but until you do it yourself, you don't really understand, right? Mm. I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Perpetual Chess, I know you have an account. Yeah, no, I, I did make an account. I have no no designs on uh, hosting Twitch, but I, I have, um, I've been watching, as you know, I watched, uh, I watched your brother Greg's two matches in the I Am Not a GM tournament, and I like to pop in on people's shows. Usually it's for like five, 10 minutes at a time. It's not a long time that I'm able to sit around and watch. But I will say that more than ever, I get it. I understand the allure. And before, I have to admit, I didn't necessarily feel that way. But it can be quite compelling. And as you say, like, Hikaru is blowing up. He's getting like 30,000 viewers at once. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, boom times for chess, even if it's a um, difficult time overall. And then with, uh, with the St. Louis Chess Club, we're going to be doing um, some events coming up with a new format called Clutch Chess. So that's really exciting. And then... As you mentioned briefly in the introduction, I am doing uh, some work to kind of transition some of our live programming online, including one of my favorite programs that I do at US Chess, which is the Girls Club Room, which is getting girls from all different schools and um, places in the United States and giving lessons and inspiring talks by, you know, top players and leaders. And that's just been amazing. Um, I'm, I'm just really looking forward to it every week. So, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of really fun stuff going on. Yeah, so much stuff. So again, makes me all the more grateful that you, that you're taking time to help me out with this, Jen. So we should we should bring it back to the book. Obviously, listeners know they can also listen to you on Lady Night and check out your Ladies Night and check out your Twitch stream. And then there's a lot of time to uh, kick back and catch up. But um, 
getting to Judith. Um, so this book actually, somewhat to my surprise, as I thought about it, this specific book, I do not believe has been recommended by any guests on the show. Although Grandmaster Sam Shanklin, um, when way back when he came on like three years ago, something like that, he did mention Judith's book from GM to top 10, um, which is the third in this trilogy of uh, biographies that she wrote. So, I mean, we have had strong players recommend her books generally. And I, I do feel like overall, I mean, Obviously, we'll we'll talk more about our overall take on the book, but I don't think it's going to surprise anyone that we're both very positive about it. It's safe to say, um, but it did surprise me. I feel like it doesn't get as much attention as it deserves. Do you have that impression as well, Jen? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I didn't reflect on that as much until I started, you know, googling the book and looking it up. And by the way, just one quick correction: actually, the GM to top ten was the second in the trilogy, and then the third was a Game of Queens. Ah, okay. My mistake. Which I guess was more about like the the end of her career, although that was really, you know, elite as well. But she broke it up like that. Um, and I I do think that. And I, I I wonder what the reason is. I mean, I think part of it is that it's three parts. And maybe that's a little overwhelming for people that if it was like one um, book, which would obviously be incredibly difficult because she had so many great games, but that... Um, Maybe that could that be part of it? What do you think? I don't know. I mean, of course, one always wonders, is there sexism at play? That That's another possibility. Um, I, I also feel like uh, I was thinking maybe because it's recent, it hasn't gotten the attention it deserves. But on the other hand, obviously, I'm asking people almost every week for book recommendations and plenty of, um, you know, plenty of, of recent books uh, get mentioned a lot. But this just hasn't been one. So I'm not sure. But Jen, we're going to do our part to change that. Um, so 2012 book, as you mentioned, first in a, first in a trilogy published by quality chess. So as always, it's, it's a beautiful book about 375 pages. Um, in addition, lots of diagrams, sort of hallmark of quality chess books and also amazing pictures. I was, one thing I was struck by was, um, how well archived Judith's life was like she knew she was going to, or someone in her family knew that they were going to do great things. So, um, the book is, uh, very, very well recorded and, and listeners get to benefit from that. Um, in addition to it being a quality chess offering, that of course means that the book is available on Forward Chess. And before I forget, I just want to let you guys know that Forward Chess reached out to me and graciously is offering um 25% off of any of Judith's three books if you use the discount code Judith. And I'm not, this is not a paid advertisement. This is just an appreciation of Judith and Forward Chess. So if you do like eBooks and you decide to get it, that's something to keep in mind. And Jen, you as you are using the same version, correct? Yes, exactly. The um the beautiful um hardback and yeah, it's it's really nice to read. Lots of diagrams and I mean, for me, the photos in the first edition really stand out. Like I have all three of them, but I, actually I have two because one of them I gave away as a prize and forgot to replace. That, right. that happens a lot. This is a great book for that though, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I I just, the photos, you know, when, when you see like the, the little kid photos like of her and Susan and Sophia looking at a globe and having their file cabinets with all the different openings, like that's just... Yeah. Such a incredible window into their early life. Whereas, you know, later photos, it's great to have as well. But, you know, you're more likely to have remembered seeing it in a magazine, right? Yeah. And I feel like later stage chess photos, I mean, there we have some amazing chess photographers in the world, David Lada, Leonard Utz, um, Eric Rosen, uh, etc. There's so, so many more. But but 
they're often, I mean, and they do a great job capturing the tension of chess matches. But as you say, it's generally just two people sitting across from each other. But these, she's got pictures of the towns. She has pictures of her next to various animals. And as you say, all the, all the household pictures are really cool. And, and they also sort of just uh, put, you know, a picture being worth a thousand words. They really um, bring home the point of just how young she was because you would not know it playing through the games when she's like absolutely thrashing these household names. But then you see this picture and it's just this little girl. Yeah, it is. It's that that is one of the best thing, and and also the diagrams. There's so many diagrams, so you can like read it without setting up a chessboard if you're so inclined, which is definitely something I like about the book. Yeah, as a you know, yeah, that's it, huge for me as well. And um, yeah, quality chess books generally, but this book in particular, um, there's tons of diagrams. There's analysis diagrams on top of the regular diagrams. So of course you would not be optimizing your uh, chess improvement if you don't set up a chess set, but you, you'll get more than you would out of a lot of books, um, just laying in bed and reading it or whatever. Um, uh, a little bit more about Judith's bio, just in case. Um, I mean, I have a feeling most people listening will know about her, her or at least have heard her name, but um, I mean, we'll keep it brief because there's many pages, much virtual ink spilled online about them, of course, in addition to books you can read. But she and her sister, Sophia and Susan, were educated at home at an early age as with chess basically as a special subject. Um, and she being the youngest got to benefit from um, her parents, what they learned about teaching and both of her parents had um, backgrounds as educators. So um, yeah, just just amazing results. I mean, she has so many records. Of course, the name of the book is How I Beat Fisher's Record. As Jen mentioned, she became the youngest grandmaster to beat Fisher's record um, at the age of 14. Of course, that record has, or, or sorry, at 15 years, 15, four months. Yeah. Um, and of course, that record has subsequently been broken many times and is currently held by GM Karyakin. But um, just one of the many, many records she had. I mean, she was um, number 55 in the world at the age of 12. Um, and this was obviously there's a lot of chess prodigies now. Um, the chess prodigies still existed then, but that was um, more of a rare feat at that point. And also um, the fact that she was a, a, a girl at the time, now a woman, obviously doing this um, just had special meaning. So, so Jen, what did it mean to you seeing someone like Judith just breaking all these records as a young female chess player? Oh, it was incredible. I mean, it was so fun to watch and just um she was a she was a hero to so many girls growing up during that time and playing actively and just uh loved like I said, I was always scouring books and magazines for more examples of her play and yeah, it 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 meant a lot. It really shut down some of the the sexist theories that women couldn't be uh, among the best in the world. And they and were more quite prevalent then. Yeah, and even more broadly uh, about women's talent in intellectual fields in general. So, and the way that she played also was so inspiring, yeah. being that she was this incredibly aggressive attacking player. And yeah, she just destroyed people. Yeah, and now, I mean, one record, um, she was the top-rated woman for 23 years. And the first person she took that title from was her sister, her older sister, Susan Polgar. So, and since till the present day, basically, I mean, she's not active anymore, so maybe people don't count it, but nobody has reached that level. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to reach that level. I think she peaked at number eight in the world. I mean, as GM, the top 10 says definitely within the top 10 and of course, famously beat Kasparov and Anand and so many others. Um, Carlson. Yeah. Just, just an incredible legacy. Um, so 
obviously based on the way we're talking about it, I think, um, I think uh, listeners can infer that this book is good for players of any level. I mean, certainly it's very readable. There's lots of biographical detail, so anyone can sit and enjoy it. But if you're trying to follow the chess, um, what what level, Jen, do you think one should be in order to appreciate these uh, masterpieces? Well, I think to read the whole book, probably you you wrote um, you you told me before the call um, that you thought maybe 15 to 1600 would be the minimum. But I think, especially from doing these Zoom classes with girls on, on for US chess women, I, I really think you could go a little bit lower, especially for the first few chapters. Because the thing is, a lot of these kids who are rated like 1000 or 1100 are like, you know, 500 strength and like openings and positional right. play and like 1600 in tactics. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, so they they will really appreciate like those first few chapters and like mating net, Zwischenzug, um, queen sacrifice, all all that stuff. I really feel like they'll be able to solve a lot more. And I know this because, of course, I do use a lot of Judith Polgar examples in my my girls' club classes, and I I have been pleasantly surprised by how much players even rated like eleven hundred and twelve hundred can find. Okay. That's, that's good to know. Yeah. So, I mean, and on the high end in terms of who can benefit from it, I mean, I certainly can. Um, and yeah, I would say even, even beyond that, even this book, I mean, I, the, the tactics are quite advanced. I mean, she's again, by the age of 12, she's 2,500. So as the book goes on, she's getting, um, she's getting pretty advanced, I guess, maybe not 2,500, but, um, in that neighborhood, um, so there's, yeah, there's plenty for people of all levels. And of course, even any GMs that would be listening, like even if the chess is not like super challenging, the, the memoir is, um, like the, is there's so much to learn just from the Polgar story and from her enthusiasm. Um, so we're going to dig a little bit more into it, Jen, but first, um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about our friends from Chessable. I'm actually just going to do this, this, um, quote unquote ad read live and just, uh, remind listeners that the Magnus course dropped, uh, this week as I'm recording, I, it, as we're recording, it came out yesterday. So Jen, did you catch wind of this Magnus course? Oh yeah. How could I not? I mean, <laughs> the Magnus touch, right? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's an amazing opportunity to learn from the world champion. So I saw the one free video. I haven't gotten a chance to check out the whole thing yet. But if you're interested in Magnus and or getting better at chess and who isn't, um, there's four and a half hours of video of he and uh, John. I am John Bartholomew breaking down his games and of course, move trainer technology to review. So go to Chessable and have a look. Um, I certainly will be having a look with my first spare moment now that we'll be have this podcast behind us. Um, but let's move on to the book structure. So Jen, you yeah, sort let's of move a- on from John Bartholomew. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're no longer a fan of his in the Shahadi household. <laughs> so for listeners who do not know what Jen's referring to, <laughs> uh, my good friend and Jen's brother, Greg Shahadi in the I Am Not a GM tournament. Uh, Greg is a super GM level trash talker. But it turns out he's maybe a tiny bit weaker than John in uh, in speed chess, or at least he was on the day of the match. And even though I like to pretend that I root against Greg and I have uh, a lifetime history of rooting against Greg because he would beat me in everything, uh, secretly, even though I love Johnny B as well, I wanted Greg to win and I was sad to see that happen. Of course. But yeah, you know, it did intrigue me because I know that Johnny B's got a chance to spend a lot of time with Magnus and... You certainly got like a vibe even from that match that there was this like practicality of, you know, to 
to just give you some insight into what happened in that match um, before we get back into Judith, it's like Greg was crushing him in the first two games because his openings were like super sharp knives. And John was just like, okay, I'm going to play the Torre for every remaining game. And yeah. it just had this like super practical feel. Um, and so, yeah, I'm really anxious to, to check out the course. Yeah, John John Bartholomew has got the mini Magnus thing going on. Like when when I play Greg, even when I played him when we were teenagers and he started to become significantly stronger than me, I just felt like I couldn't really fathom like what would have to happen for me to beat him. I just I wasn't going to outplay him over a large number of moves. Basically, I would need some sort of blunder. Um and then with John, it's just uh he makes it look so easy. You know, and that's sort of John's hallmark. I mean, I, this is kind of a, an aside, but when you watch his videos, um, there, there's just sort of a simplicity that makes it look mimical, mimicable, but it's actually not that mimicable. Um, well, this... It, sorry, go yeah. ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, b- by contrast, of course, like the the positions in games in Judah book are not about simplicity. They're about phenomenal fireworks and tactics it's just so incredible i mean so every every page there's like another boom it's yeah it's so much fun it's so much fun i mean and like i said to me it was very nostalgic because i remembered seeing a lot of these positions back in the day either from that book that i mentioned by kathy forbes or just in the magazines but then it was those same games but now annotated by judith herself yeah, I believe it's in from GM to top ten because I didn't see it in rereading this rereading this book. But she calls it "Thunder from a Blue Sky," and she like calls it back a couple times during her book, where it'll just be this sort of calm looking position, and then like she just pulls out some insane tactic that that actually works. It's not just like crazy hope chest. She just had this like hidden plan, which you can see the seeds of in a lot of the games in here as well. Yeah, yeah, so much fun. Um, I mean, obviously, it's hard to describe like cool tactics, um, you know, just in a podcast format. But I think maybe we'll do we'll we'll point out some games and try to describe them a little later. But I did also want to like mention just because I think you know Judith. When we talked about her legacy, obviously, a big thing is um, how she didn't play in women's events, right? And a, a lot of people cite that as one of her big contributions that she thought she needed to play in mixed gender events to get the maximum possible level that she could reach, which she did reach. I mean, she reached the top 10 in the world. Um, And we, I think, don't really have a woman in the world right now who is embodying that Ho-Yifan to some extent, but right now she's just not really that active at all, right? She did kind of reach a point where she was tired of playing in women's events because she felt like she needed even stronger competition. Uh, so I, I think it's always it's always really important to like look back on that and you know consider what's different now and what would it take to make that happen. I mean, I, I should point out things are different now in that there's so many strong female players, there's so many grandmasters, um, and there weren't quite as many when Judith um, reached these stratospheric heights. I wonder how much longer she might have played in women's events if it was a little bit more comparable today. Would it have been like another couple of years? Would she have all, always dabbled them in her in her career because the level would be a little bit higher? Um, just some, some hypothetical questions, but I, I can't help but think about them being that so much of my work is promoting women and girls' chess and also taking a lot of questions in media appearances about separate women's tournaments. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that gets old, but I'm fully confident, Jen. I mean, I feel like Judith, 
she she permanently rewrote the manual. It can't it can't be changed back. I mean, she she proved that that women can beat anyone in the world. Um, and uh, with the trajectory that women in chess are on, particularly um, with some of the work that the U.S. Chess Women, um, with with your help, um, with your guidance, is doing, I mean, I do think sooner or later there's going to be another player knocking on the door. Um, there's just so many young talents, and yeah, w- uh, wouldn't have been possible without Judith. That's for sure. Yeah, although it, it's also true that there's so much great opportunities and money in women's chess. It's not clear what to me what it would take for somebody to have that same like ultra principled stand to you know stop playing them. And and also, I don't even know. I don't even want to put words into Judith's mouth because even in this book, one of the reasons she says that she stopped playing in women's tournaments was because there was an Olympiad in which she, um, her sisters and uh, model um, tied for first with the Soviet team. And they had to wait till like, you know, the 11th hour to find out if they were going to win on tie breaks. And even though she, they won almost every game. Right. And she was just like, that's stressful to have to need such a massive score to win an event. And that at that point she decided, you know, um, women's tournaments aren't for me anymore because, you know, you need, can you imagine, you know, if like, Magnus needs to go 11 out of 12 to win some rating points. He's not going to like that event necessarily, right? Yeah, yeah, that would be stressful. Yeah, or just not, you know, not plus EV to use a poker term because once in a while you draw the game or something happens and it's just difficult to play in those like much lower pools, right? Um, From like a not only a strategic point of view that you might not improve as well much, but also in just like a pure, like you're trying to get the highest rating and get invited to the top events point of view, right? Yeah, no, it's a good point. And I do think that uh, Ho Ho Yifan, that's one of the issues she was sort of grappling with. I mean, she wasn't quite, I mean, she wasn't at a level where she would automatically be invited to elite mixed events, but um, she was playing most of the time significantly down in women's events. And Humpy Canaru is another great example because I just interviewed her on Ladies Night and she reached a very high rating, um, about 2630, I think was her peak. And so she was actually the second woman after Judith Polgar to reach over 2600 before Ho Fine came along. And of course, um, I had, had the second highest rating ever. But I, Humpy was interesting because she did say to me that once she started playing more women's events, like once the balance was more women's and less open, her rating did go down a little bit. Um, so yeah, there, there's certainly something to it because Humpy had to play in all these events. And of course, to gain ratings, you would have to win so many games, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a tricky subject, but I mean, hopefully we'll have lots of women um, grappling with this subject and then just making it a non-issue, you know, in a course, in a matter of uh, years and decades. Yeah. And that's the thing about this book. It can be very inspiring. I personally think that best games collections in general are so much about the motivation and passion and inspiration. Uh, because of course we are talking about this book as a potential improvement tool. To me, the big improvement tool is that the games could inspire you to study chess more because, you know, it's going to inject you with that joy for the game. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that's, that's one of the number one takeaways from this book. I mean, that she's the, the whole book just sort of exudes joy that that you can't fake. I mean, she has, you can feel her smiling as she writes it, you know, and it's not in a sort of, uh, it's very genuine. Um, 
Yeah, so I agree. I mean, and the chess itself, of course, you can learn from. But um, as you know, uh, towards the end, we usually talk about uh, like how useful this is for your chess improvement. And I would just say, I mean, the, a lot of people are talking about the the concept of knowledge versus skills. And this, you're not going to learn specific skills. You're not going to learn to implement things just by seeing it. But as you say, inspiration goes a long way. Absolutely. What were some of your favorite um, stories from the book? Oh man, there's so many. I mean, and it's going to sort of, um, it's going to sort of um, mix in with like my favorite games and my favorite quotes. It all sort of um, weaves together. I mean, uh, one of my favorite games also includes my favorite story. So I'll, I'll leave it for that because I actually, I do want to read the opening paragraph of the book because um, I just feel like for anyone who hasn't read the book and wants to get a flavor of their writing, I actually forgot to double check if Quality Chess has a free preview on their website, but they often do. If you, uh, if you look for it, they often have a free excerpt that you can read. But in any event, I'm going to read the first half page of the preface um, right now. So Judith says, I started flirting with the idea of publishing a collection of my best games a long time ago. For years, I was aware that the moment when I could fulfill my dream was far away. As a professional player, I spent most of my time and energy playing in tournaments. So each time the idea of my book popped up, I had to my I had to say to myself, later, later. By coincidence, several publishers approached me during this period. I like how she says it's a coincidence <laughs> that uh, everyone was a book from this, uh, you know, chess rock star. Um, she says, and although I was not prepared to embark on any definite project yet, I could feel that this whole idea was little by little starting to take shape. The 2009 World Cup pr proved to be a decisive moment in the birth of my book. In the third round, I played Boris Gelfon, a very strong opponent who went on eventually to win. Uh, the first match with black and during my preparations sorry i lost the first match with black and during my preparations for the second one i found myself with no clue how to break down his favorite petrov defense i decided to improvise with the bishops opening and in the early middle game started a sacrificial attack in the best spirit of the king's gambit my favorite opening as a kid this turned out to be gelfand's only defeat in a classical game in the whole tournament i eventually lost the playoff but this did not spoil the magic it felt like a moment it felt like for a moment like the judith from 1988 who many, including myself, had forgotten, had come back to deliver her trademark brilliancies. With this nostalgic feeling, I decided that the time had finally come to write my book in which the little girl from the past would play an important role. On the way back home while waiting to embark at Moscow Airport, I made it official by sharing my thoughts with my husband, Gustav. He was delighted with the idea, and I appreciate very much his enthusiasm, support, and encouragement ever since. So little that gets you into it, and of course it's a three volume thing. So massive undertaking that she took on, and uh, we're we're very very glad that she did. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I I really um, I really enjoyed um, the first couple of chapters, which she says that she organizes it. Um, in it's not exactly chronological, although there's some chronological feel to it, like the Hungarian championship which she won and. Um, earn the Grandmaster title is towards the end of the book. And a lot of the earliest memories you have in chess are in the beginning, but it's not strict chronology, which I like. I think that's a nice choice. So you see like the eight-year-old Judah kind of pop up at different points in the first volume. Uh, but uh, I really liked, you know, just reading those about those early days about how in the beginning, she and Sophia would often travel to tournaments and play in the the B group while big sister Susan played in the A group and um, how they were like kind of 
in awe of her. And like in between the games, they would talk to each other. And, you know, back in those, those days when there was also even some adjournments, I, you, you really got this, uh, this great vibe of the familial love. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the, yeah, talking about what they did on the rest days and rooting for each other and how they always seemed to draw when they played each other. Um, yeah, you, you could feel the bond for sure. Yeah, and one one excerpt that I liked was when she talks about this beautiful mating net that she wove. Um, and she wrote that this was in um, 1984, so she would have been seven or eight. And she says that generally speaking, it was not my habit to move backwards um, as she had just made a backward king, king move in what seemed like a, a, a pretty simple end game where there was just four pawns uh, for one side and five for Judith. And she was trying to squeeze out a win in the night end game. And she said that over the years, some of my opponents started getting more and more suspicious whenever I played such a solid move, like a backward move. But that was not the case in 1984. And so then she plays this amazing move, knight one to create a mating net um, with so few pieces on the board. And she remarks that this was also the type of move. So she's playing black and she plays knight one So knight on the back rank. And she writes that it's a type yeah. of move that caused her technical problems because she was not big enough to reach the back rank. Yeah. <laughs> so she had to stand up and make this move. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a great one. Yeah, the, that's def that definitely made me laugh when, when I read it as well. Um, and another story, a sort of similar story. She tells the story at some point of um, when Susan, you know, and Susan's um, older than her. Susan's working with a trainer and they said that she needed to solve some puzzle um, in, in order to be able to join the group like she was so excited to join but they weren't letting her yet because she was so much younger but then she she so she solved the puzzle and from then on she was able to study uh with susan and her trainer when you know who knows how young she was at this point but um couldn't have been over eight. Oh yeah there was th i have that part actually opened the book believe it or not oh cool she writes and this was this was actually in her, her chapter on pawn play which she admits that you know she was actually so much more involved in dynamism than pawn play so that's actually part of the story she she writes when i was 9 years old susan used to have serious training sessions in her room which sophia and i were not allowed to join i somehow sneaked in once and started to show a game in which i had a setup with c5 and e5 against the english opening Susan and her trainer, Laszlo Hazai, who, by the way, is one of my regular trainers now, kindly tried to explain that Black's position is strategically unsound because of the chronic weakness on d5. White gets a comfortable advantage with the 91, 92, 93 idea. Much to their surprise, the little sister did not give in so easily. We started analyzing, and I annoyed them time and time again with dangerous attacking ideas or tactical um, ideas aimed at destabilizing the center. At the end of the day, no convincing way to an advantage for white could be um, proved. From that day on, I was allowed into Susan's working sanctuary. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, she told it much better than I did. But, yeah, yeah, it's a it's a great story. And and in the first quote you read, she talks about endgames. And I just wanted to quickly mention the the endgames was actually my favorite chapter, which you wouldn't expect because, of course, she's known for her incredible tactics. But she really makes the endgames come alive. Um, and as as Jen has alluded to, the book, in addition to being organized non-chronologically, it's organized by theme. So there's there's um, chapters about uh, different tactical themes, um, tricks, 
improving peace placement, pawn play, as you said, attacking the uncastled king and stuff like that. But I also want to mention, as Jen mentioned, um, they so it, the fact that it's not chronologically could make it not flow as well. But she does a really good job, like kind of tying the chronological narrative into it. So even though she's jumping back and forth, she'll say like, this game was before I won this tournament. And you may have seen my prior round game in such and such other chapter. So um, it flows pretty well under those circumstances. And it definitely, I think, and one of the reasons she mentions in her preface that she decided to arrange the book this way is because her books often, as Jen has alluded to, were so well known. So she felt like if she just said, here's my games, um, it wouldn't necessarily resonate as much. So she wanted it to have the feel of an instruction manual. Um, and I, I think it, I think it worked pretty well. Yeah, interesting. I think so, too. Although I have to admit, I think the other way it would have worked pretty well with her, too, because sometimes I find chronological um, treatments in books to be boring because it's like there's some part that's more interesting than the other part. And like you especially if it's like a, you know, a rock star or a movie star writing about like their childhood and their adolescence and it feels like forced, like they're forced right. to write about these things because it's a biography. And you don't want to have that feeling. But since Judith was so successful and her upbringing was so interesting, I don't feel like there would be any part that would have any boredom. So I, I think she could have gotten away with a chronological treatment and it would also have been awesome. Yeah, it's a good point. Because also, I think what she said about her games being so famous, like, I mean, OK, that might be true at the top level. Um, but I don't think all her games, if anything, as we were saying, they're maybe not as famous as they should be overall. And the other thing is there's so many training games in here, um, and so many snippets of sort of lesser known games. Like when I was doing hyperlinks for a couple of the games we're going to talk about, like some of them were in my chess space, but not on chessgames.com. Some of them were on chessspace.com, chessgames.com, but not in my database. Some of them were in neither, you know, so it's not like there was necessarily like the comprehensive collection somewhere um, that that one could find. So I agree that that was overblown or maybe um, maybe that's not the best choice of words, but exaggerated. Um, but overall, I mean, it, what she chose makes it very readable. Um, and I think it's more readable than than some other chess memoirs, even Life and Games of Mikhail Tall, which, of course, Sam C Copeland and I recapped. Um, about six months ago on this podcast. We love that book, but I found this to be more readable and also more personal. I mean, the stories are, I enjoy the reflections about her life and how she sort of, you know, grapples with being so good and all the, I mean, there's there's more than just chess in here as compared to that or like my 60 most memorable games or something like that. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned that your favorite chapter was the art of simplifying an elements of endgame technique. And, you know, that's also um, bittersweet photo that opens that chapter as it's uh, Benko um, and his wife, along with Judah Polgar. So he, of course, is a Hungarian and also American um, grandmaster who died a little less than a year ago at, um, you know, after an incredible life, you know, grandmaster composer, author. Um, he was just such an inspir inspiring figure as even at the age of 90, he was still composing original chess problems. So he, of course, was one of Judith's trainers and, and worked with her on the end games. And so it was just, it was really sweet to see that pop out. Yeah. Yeah. And so many figures in, in chess history, both 
I mean, modern chess, but also classical chess. I mean, she obviously, you know, eventually got to know everyone. So people's names pop up all over the place. Like I didn't know, but I didn't catch this the first time I'd read this um, a few years back. But uh, apparently Mikhail Marin, author of uh, Learn from the Legends, is a good friend of hers and actually helped her a lot with this book she mentions in the preface. And I hadn't remembered that detail and of course, she mentions like when she plays uh, and uh, Gelfond and Ivanchuk when they're both considered like two of the top young talents. So it's just interesting to see all these well-known players at different stages of life. Yeah, of course. I mean, I can imagine she would have been a, a really fun person to work work with for them as well. Being that, you know, as a as a any kind of trainer or um, anyone in the chess world wants to work with the magnificently talented because anything that they give to you, they're just going to soak up times 50, right? Yeah. And I actually, I have a quote, um, one of my favorite quotes related to that. So I'll just go ahead and read it. Um, which, so she includes a 1989 game with, um, with Gelfond. And this is one of the few games she includes. That's a loss. Um, Gelfond just, uh, she had been training with him as she mentions, um, as I mentioned uh, right before then, and she had, he had seen that she really liked the Gelfand, the uh, Benko Gambit. So she avoids the, the Benko Gambit and he plays, I mean, he avoids it. He plays two night F3 and he just grinds her down and sort of wins in very technical fashion. And she says, uh, I must confess that during and after the game, I found Boris's opening choice rather unfair which she has in quotations. But over the years, I learned that this is part of the game. The game with Boris, and then she later says, the game with Boris gave me a warning, though, that things would not always go as smoothly as I wanted. And paradoxically, things sometimes go better after a loss. Hmm. So I just, you know, I like that, first of all, I used to get that feeling. I don't know if you, Jen, you, you were super tactical, you know, when you were playing a lot. So you might've felt that way. When people played like boring-ish openings, did it, did it bother you at some stages? Yeah. And specifically, I struggled with, you know, not knight f3 in the second move, but knight f3 in the first move or c4 in the first move. Just transpositionally, there's such tricky openings to play if you're not like a King's Indian player, um, which Judith did play a lot of King's Indian, especially in her youth. Right. But yeah. um, for me, uh, playing more of like a Grunfeld and then sometimes a Nimzo Indian, it was just so uh, irritating to see those moves and a, a very quiet type of queen pawn or delayed queen pawn opening that didn't give you anything to hit at. Yeah, they used to, I definitely went through a phase. I mean, <laughs> it's still not my favorite to play against, but you know, now at, like Judith figured out, you know, it's all part of the game, but, but definitely very relatable and cool that she in includes some, some losses in the book, although she didn't lose very often growing up. Yeah. I remember there was another one that she showed where, like she got out judited basically like some super tricky tactics and she was very gracious about that too. She's like, yeah, and here I thought I was going to mate him. And, um, you know, he actually found the type of tactic that I usually find. Um, so the, the, yeah, there, there were, there were a couple of losses, but most of them of course were wins. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to read one or two more quotes and then we should get to our favorite games. Um, and Jen, we'll see. I don't know if you have any other quotes you want to share, but I'll hop in with run right now, um, which is early in the book uh, in the improving peace place chap, peace placement chapter. She says, 
Before Steinitz, the common belief was that no matter how things had gone up to a certain point of a game, the more skillful player should always be able to pull some magic out of his hat and turn the tables in his favor. Maybe this is not entirely true, but it's how Steinitz liked to portray it. Anyway, this attitude did not sit well with the deep analytical spirit of the first world champion who dedicated much of his life and career to proving that chess is a logical game. Steinitz explained the availability of winning combinations was due to small strategic accumulations during a long preparatory sequence, which were far less spectacular than the finish. Looking back at all these little tricks of mine, I get the feeling that they could not have occurred completely randomly. In the critical moments, my pieces used to be kind to me by displaying their hidden energy. But this happened because I used to treat them in the same way. By being kind to a piece, I mean looking for possibilities of improving its placement and trying to figure out where would be the best attacking square for it. By the way, I see here a connection with one of my main principles in life. Treat other people the same way you would like to be treated by them. So a little life lesson from Judith as well as a chess lesson. Yeah, that reminded me of the uh, Jonathan Rousen book where he talks about talking to your pieces. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that. Uh, my my son is starting to play chess, um, and he mostly with the the Magnus the, the what is it Magnus's Kingdom app. Oh, he loves that. Yeah, and he, um, you know, the pieces are always like jumping up and down. He's like, are the chess pieces happy? <laughs> are they? Are is the rook happy? Is there is the rook excited? it's great it is great though but it's funny because she's such a tactical player but it is interesting to see throughout the book like you know obviously some of it is like in retrospect that she wants to like write about this so other people can understand but it is kind of nice to see her interweave these like more strategic like you know hand wavy concepts with like just the brute force creativity and not brute, brute force calculation combined with like the great creativity just to look for moves that other people wouldn't look for yeah and uh, again, this is something that'll come up later in when we talk about chess improvement takeaways, but she credits a lot of her creativity to solving studies. Um, no surprise to regular listeners of this podcast. Um, so Jen, did we get all of your favorite quotes or is there, uh, is there another quote or story that, that stood out to you? Well, a lot of my favorite um, stories and quotes kind of come in with the many of my favorite games. So maybe we can uh, talk about those. Yeah, as- let's get to it. We certainly share one of them. This is a a game that I just adore showing um, to girls' classes. I've given so many talks now that I don't show it as much anymore because I think it could be a repeat for a lot of people. But there's a famous game from the 1988 Olympiad in Thessaloniki where she played against um, Chilingarova, and it's just a stunning miniature. Yeah, yeah. So we both had selected that one. Seventeen moves. Uh, Rosalimo Sicilian. Um, she, you know, there's a trademark Judith sacrifice of uh, material for time and initiative, which obviously is a theme running through lots of her games. But it's especially I actually use it teaching a lot too. Even though I don't generally teach girls only classes, I always try to show women's games um, just because there's sort of a it's it's easy to show men's games. So. Unfortunately, at least for me, I have to make an effort to show women's games. And this one for me is, I mean, it's right there with the opera game in terms of like how accessible it is for kids. And it's, but it's not so simple that players of a higher level can't also learn from it. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's very modular in that way. Like you can totally show the game to anyone from like, you know, somebody who's just starting out really the final checkmating combination, right. Or even if they don't see the sacrifice, they can see like the background mate that 
um, follows the sacrifice, or you can show a quite advanced player because, you know, seeing everything five moves in advance is a lot more difficult, right? So yeah, this is, this is a great game in that respect. And it, it got a tremendous reaction. Um, as, as you, um, pointed out, uh, Gary Kasparov walking by as she's delivering the beautiful combination, like how cool is that? And then on top of that, I remember reading that at the time it was called like the female game of the century. Now, of course, calling it the female game of the century (laughs) might, might be considered like not, not the greatest compliment ever, but on the other hand, it, I think it stands up as like the game that you show to people who want to get into chess, you know, yeah. and like, you're right, boys and girls. Yeah. And it ends, in, you know, it ends in a queen sacrifice. And there's also this instructive moment where it looks like she's left a piece on pre because there's like, in a typical Judith fashion, there's a more obvious checkmating line and then a more subtle one, which is the what carries her to victory. So um, for my students, it's like, you know, and obviously for me too, it's a nice lesson of like, when you're playing a stronger player, and it looks like they just hung a piece. Um, it you know it doesn't mean that you sh- if you can't figure out why you shouldn't take it, you have to take it. But you should definitely be a little suspicious. Yeah, I I love this one. And then it's 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 a great queen sacrifice game. And then there's another one of my favorites, which is also a queen sacrifice, but a little bit more, a little bit like of a more of a rarer pattern, I would say, because her king is sitting on h four, so. You know, she's playing with the white pieces that that's not as typical as the game where she mates in this very iconic fashion in the dark squares. But I really love this one uh, because it's so aesthetic. She's playing against Lars Vol Hansen, and this is in 1989. So just a year after that other one um, from the Thessaloniki Olympiad. And what's really nice in the book is she describes a checkmate and she says, my opponent's face turned red instantly. Um, after a few minutes of double checking the gravity of the situation, he resigned. And she says that the foreseeing the combination was not easy for Black because of time pressure and also because um, it's her king that's participating in the attack, much like the famous um, Nigel Short game with the king on h6. Her king on h4 is occupying key squares that make for checkmate later in the game. And now I, of course, knew this game from a long time ago from all these books. It was a really famous Judith combination, but what's really cool in the book is she shows her notebook at the time where she um, had played a recent simul and there was a checkmating pattern that was somewhat similar to that. I mean, honestly, I didn't think it looked that similar. So, but that, but that wasn't, that's the thing. I think that very talented players are really good at making connections between positions that might not seem that similar, but, um, for them, it it clicks, right? And that means that you have to do fewer iterations of pattern recognition if one pattern seems more like another pattern than to other people. And that was just such a great insight that she showed you her literal notebook from when she was 12 years old, showing and writing down those. And this was by hand because there was no printer, right? Yeah. She literally draws an eight by eight chessboard and puts the pieces on the squares in the both games. Yeah, I mean, just amazing that she had all this preserved and was willing to share it with us. It's it's pretty cool. And Lars Bohansen, of course, a Danish grandmaster, but now based in Florida. And a couple pages after that, she has a, a cool finish against uh, grandmaster Jonathan Tisdall, uh, 
American by birth, but now lives in Norway. And of course, a great chess writer, writer of Improve Your Chess Now. So this is sort of what we mean about there's just these familiar names at various stages in their life. I mean, this that game's from 1980, the Tisdale game's from 1988, the Hanson game's from 1989, just uh, sprinkled throughout the book. So get, you know, get some modern chess historical perspective as well. And that, by the way, is another queen sacrifice. That's yeah, quite nice. yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's a that's a great chess lesson right there. You know, just those three games. You know, the Chingarova, the um, the Bo Hansen, and the Tisdall game. You know, for for people who are overwhelmed with their chess coaching, you know, if you need a new new lesson pack for, I guess, like the um, anywhere from like eight hundred to eighteen hundred range, like you know, there you go. Yeah, I mean, honestly, you can just you can just pick to a random page in this book, <laughs> and and you'll find something eminently instructive. Um, so, but yeah, the queen sacrifice theme is definitely a nice one um, in those games. Um, another favorite game of mine was uh, Zafroni Polgar. So this one comes later in the book, page one seventy five. By this time, she's moved her way up to the World Under fourteen Championship. Um, and this was a mixed event. Zafroni um, eventually became a grandmaster, of course, as did Judith. Um, and this is one that's of a different character. Um, it's it's an end game where she it's a bishop's of opposite colors, um, where she's only up one pawn. But basically, she's just seen this nuance where she can make a few subtle prophylactic moves, and they prevent White from stopping her past pawns. And I, it's you know it's a huge game because it led to her winning the championship. And just generally, I mean. Uh, I do feel like I she's at her best. Like she, it's for it's for good reason that she's best known for her tactics. But she really is a well-rounded player, and that comes out pretty well in the endgame technique chapter, which is why I said it was my favorite. Oh yeah, some of the subtle subtleties. I, I remember there is another one where she like you know has all these like really super subtle rook, rook maneuvers, kind of reminding me of that study where you play like rook d two to only to play rook d one the next move. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, like it, it is. It is impressive the the subtleties in end games and how you know that often ties really well into the super tactical players. Yeah, and just always alert for tricks. the The other game um, I picked was Polgar Fleer. Fleer, of course, also. Uh, I don't know if he was a grand. I think he may have been a grandmaster at the time. Definitely a grandmaster now. But another decisive game to win the Hastings Open as a 14-year-old. Um, and again, I mean, just this is a 14-year-old girl playing nothing but grown men at a time when you know people said that that women, let alone girls, could not play at this level. Um, and she plays the King's Gambit, which she mentioned elsewhere in a quote we read. That was one of her favorite openings. But so this huge high-stakes game plays the King's Gambit, despite the shade that Jan Gustafsson would, uh, you know, many years later throw on the King's Gambit. She, she made it work, but it's actually not what you might think of in a King's Gambit game. Um, she, it goes to an early end game, but she, uh, outplays him in the end game and makes a mating net and it won the best game prize for that tournament. So there's so many games I could have picked as my favorite, but I stopped at three. Yeah. And then I, I also really enjoyed, um, you know, just the, the climax of the book, which is the 1991 Hungary, Hungarian Championship, where she has in the final round so much on the line. I mean, this is really like the game that ends the movie, or right. at least the, the first part of the movie. As, as we know, there's a sequel in, in the trilogy. But it, it to set up the spot, she had just turned 15, and she still had a chance 
to break Fisher's record for the youngest ever grandmaster, but she didn't have a lot of time because obviously, you know, Fisher also was 15. She's, she's trying to get it in like 15 and four months. Right. Yeah. Um, and so she's got last round a day off before she needs just to draw to get the grandmaster norm and to break Fisher's record. Right. But if she wins, she could win the Hungarian national championship. Right. So there, and, and she, um, is actually playing with the, the black pieces as well. Right. So, uh, a game was so much on the line. And so you might expect um, some kind of like solid opening choice. Um, but no, it's just like an absolutely insane Sicilian right out of the gate right. where like everything's in take. And she does end up, <laughs> spoiler alert, she does end up actually winning the whole game, not just the draw that's needed to get the um, the Grandmaster title. But that's, that's a great moment, you know, in sports, right? That yeah. you have these dual goals and in, arguably the more important one is to break that record. Cause that's like a forever record. Right. But I don't know. It's also winning the national championship was probably really important to her. So she just did both. Yeah. And, and she's got a lot of impressive wins with black in, in this book. I mean, that was, that was another thing that struck me is, um, She's she plays so dynamically and energetically, and it's not like she's only striking with the white pieces. Um, she's she's got some. The, the game I mentioned with Safroni was also with Black, and you know, just s- such such imaginative, fun games. Both uh, whether whether she's white or black, and of course, you had one more as well, right, Jen? I did, but I just also wanted to say that I think because of games like this one, there was there's a bunch, but like this one in particular, the Tibor Tolnai game from the last round of the Hungarian Championship. Um, she played a, she played a lot of like Khan or Paulson type yeah. setups. And when I saw these games, I tried to to play that at some point. It never worked for me. I just always felt like I got smashed in the dark squares, but I did make an effort. <laughs> I made an yeah. concerted effort um, inspired by her, but some of the openings that I was inspired to play by her worked out a lot better. Like I think when I was around, when I started to get good at chess in high school and Ben and I went to the same high school. Um, Masterman, along with my brother, um, when I started to get good, I started with kind of like a, a, a more insipid openings, like the C3 Sicilian. Not, it's a great opening. I'm not knocking it. It's just, I I was kind of like stuck on stuff like that. And after watching enough duty games, I was like, no, I'm just going to play the open Sicilian. And I actually shot up like a hundred points like soon there after that decision. Maybe it's because of all of the work and all the things I had to study to learn the open Sicilian, not the actual games that I won. Yeah, but and the open Sicilian. Of her. Yeah, and the open Sicilian in particular, I find her inspiring. I mean, because again, she played it for both sides, um, and yeah. So whether white or black, I also didn't have much luck in my like uh, brief dalliances into those um, e six Sicilians. But but I mean the the way she plays it as white is super fun too, and of course she's got some famous games with that as as well. Yeah, it's always harder with black, isn't it? It really I is. I mean, it's like it's e- it's easier because I guess the thing with black is that you you sometimes look at their spectacular victories with their black openings and you get excited and then you're like, okay, I'm going to do this. And then somehow there's like some sideline where white just has like a tiny edge and you're not as used to the positions. Right. And somehow those those games where they were like able to like hold and then, you know, eventually coerce a mistake and win they, they don't get into the best games collection so you're just sitting right. there sweating <laughs> yeah <laughs> so yeah I, I did end up giving up the con but I think that's actually useful like 
improvement takeaway that when you're inspired by a great player that you would admire to take up an opening, um, you know, go with it. And, you know, if it doesn't work out at some point and it doesn't feel like it's really giving you that same kind of chemistry, you know, you, you can give it up then, right? But it, I think go with that passion that you get because learning a new opening is always, uh, always worthwhile because you learn more things about structure and more things about chess. And then, you know, it could be an opportunity cost if you sink like a lot of time into it, but I think it's possible to sink enough time into it that you get a sense of whether or not it's for you um, and just learn something new along the way. Yeah. And also like if, if it does take the fact that you have a sort of natural love for it can propel you. The only opening I ever regret trying was the French. That's that one is just so obvious. It's not for me. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't strike me as a fit. Um, Shut yeah. that door. <laughs> but yeah, the, uh, the only other um, one I did want to mention was this epic game versus Shea June at the 1988 Olympiad also in Thessaloniki because I think I'd seen that game before as well, but like, I didn't realize that the, you know, the great Chinese player who went on to become world champion and in some ways was one of the great instigators of this uh, Chinese chess boom um, was unrated at the time that she played Judith. And it was of course already a very strong player, but because she, um, I think she, she grew up playing Chinese chess and she was always already really good at that when she learned Western chess. So tactically she was already super gifted, but unrated like that, that was just shocking to read. Yeah. Yeah. And that's of course the same Olympiad as Chilingarova. So yeah, another example where like one is early in the book and the other is late in the book, but they're both uh, really cool games. And you had a good quote that you selected from, from that game as well, right, Jen? Well, yeah, she played this move later in the game F5 and um, her king was in the center, but F5 allowed on Passant. And so after takes on F6, she just moved her king on F7 and the F pawn kind of functioned as a, as a shield for her own king. And she wrote, I have no words capable of describing my happiness about being allowed to carry out my idea. And it really struck me because I noticed in commentary like when somebody allows en passant in an unusual way, like you're like, what? I can't believe you could do that. They're allowed to en passant you there. And like, it's like a mental block. It's like a move that you don't see, right? Yeah. And and so she was obviously, I think that was like the reason that she was so happy because you don't expect um, a move allowing en passant, you know, also um, getting a, a pawn closer to your king to be a move that's even on the menu. Right. And I don't know what your experience is with this, Jen, but as a teacher, I've noticed that like 100% when a kid can do en passant and it's actually like within the rules, there's like a very, very strong pull to do it. Um, And I suspect that this carries through even to like a fairly advanced level. Like I bet if you could do some sort of like high level data study of like evaluating the player's like a uh, cap score on a pawn capture that isn't on passant as compared to one that is on passant. Um, I bet that people play worse moves when it's on, when there's an on passant capture because the, the allure of playing it is just so strong. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's like, it's like allowing a discovered attack or something. It's something that you see really strong players do. And of course the latter is like much more common yeah. and you know, the, that that somebody so many strong players just like find a line where there's all sorts of discovered checks but none of them work 
And yeah, you get that same kind of vibe about like actually allowing this on facade that you don't recapture. Yeah. So yeah, and a nicely set trap by her to win another uh, uh, landmark game. Um, so improvement takes takeaways. I feel like we've kind of sprinkled them throughout, but just um, just to mention a few before we get out of here, Jen. Um, number one, I think I already mentioned the importance of playing training games. I mean, so it's cool that she shares the training games, but obviously she wouldn't be able to do that if she and her sisters weren't playing them like all the time. There's pictures sprinkled throughout the games, uh, throughout the book of them playing training games, um, examples of really cool snippets and they, they contribute to the quality of the games. And it's super cool. Not only that she played them, but again, that she still had the record. Um, what else can we learn from this book, Jen? Well, I think that a lot of people say these days that, um, the talent in chess is the passion to work hard. And I mean, that really reverberates from this book that she had such a love for the game and that that allowed her to do the extra mile, you know, in a, in a situation where both of her sisters also really love chess, but maybe, you know, Judith seemed to take it maybe to that just next level, you know, and that the, you don't really know because I mean, Susan's obviously um, written a lot about the game, little less from Sophia, but um, their approaches to the game are also quite passionate. But just in this book, you just get this overwhelming sense of, of her passion um, for the game and her pure love for it. And also, you get a sense that she was really um, unbothered by a lot of external factors. Right. She, she was able to just like live in this chess, this world of imagination and chess. Yeah, which considering the amount of attention she got was, I mean, that was no small feat. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That so much press attention, so many interviews, so many requests for things. And I'm sure like her family um, did a great job of shielding her from that as well. But it also seems like it was a, a gift in addition to that, a gift to be able to shut the outside world out, which is something, you know, we all need these days even more as the outside world is so compelling and that it's become gamified on our phones and our computers, like the bells and whistles, the algorithms, which give us exactly what we want, not just the annoying people that we don't want to hear from, but like are able to like, you know, get us more of what we actually want because they know what we want. Um, that, that makes it even harder to shut it out. So I think that like Judith's ability to do that, even though she doesn't really talk about it per se, you, if you, if you read the book, you, you, you get kind of like, um, smothered by that. No, smothered's the wrong word. That's negative, but you know, you, you get that vibe. Enveloped, yeah. Enveloped. Yes. That's what I meant. How do you know? Um, it has a similar, it has a similar flow to smother, doesn't it? Envelope. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, and that that reminded me. Hearing you talking about that reminded me that in the quote I read earlier about how uh, you know treating your pieces well corresponds to life and treating people well. I did just want to throw in that she was on this podcast in the early days, which blew my mind because I sent like a cold email to like uh, you know um, her organization when they were doing one of their chess festivals. So I did not have a, a very close link to her, but she couldn't have treated me nicely, and you know I was just like you know, uh, young upstart chess podcast trying to interview strong chess players and she couldn't have treated me more nicely. And that just like, I was starstruck more, almost more than anyone I've ever interviewed because I mean, she really is my favorite along with Capablanca, my favorite player, um, in part. Um, and, and, you know, in terms of people I learned from growing up, Capablanca has 
a greater role um, just because Judith was still sort of coming along. She's only a handful of years older than me. But in terms of now what I consider to be like exemplary in life, the fact that she sort of took on this uh, machine and just like destroyed it. I mean, this sort of worldview, um, just I, what could be more inspiring than that? Um, Jen, by the way, have you had any, any, excuse me, any interactions with Judith? Oh yeah, definitely. We've been on some, some emails together and then, you know, she, uh, uh, was kind enough to call into the Karen's cup coverage. Right. Of course. And so I interviewed her there along with, with Yaz and, um, she was great. Uh, I, you know, I just, she was such a gracious and interesting interviewer. Um, she, it was funny because you say that, you know, she's, um, your favorite player along with, well, your favorite living player. So right, there you go. have that. And um, she is a- another person who's a huge fan of her is Grandmaster Alejandro Ramirez. And, you know, Alejandro is never at a loss for words. He's so smooth. He's so cool. Um, and he was just like so nervous about Judith right. coming on the show. And Yaz at the end was like, you know, you know, Alejandro, do you have any questions for Judith? Because, you know, Yaz and I had been like asking her everything. And, and Alejandro was just like, <laughs> no, she's my hero. I, I, I have never seen Alejandro at a loss for words. He was just so excited <laughs> that she was on the show. That's great. Yeah, that that says it all. Um, but yeah, the um, all the interactions I've had with her are great. I saw I met her in New York once as well when she was doing an event, Magnus Against the World. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously and she's doing it's... a lot now for for FIDE. So I feel like. I might end up, you know, in, in, in like some of the same conversations and threads with her more often. And she even like did a, uh, a talk at the London chess conference, which was about gender and chess. Yeah. That's up your alley. You could say. Yeah. And it was really good. I mean, I really liked what she said. I thought she was really, um, I thought she was really, um, well, she chose her words really carefully when talking about the subject, and it was just very interesting. She was just basically talking about how um, the unconscious bias of like kind of shifting girls slightly in a direction where they don't think they're as good as boys. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, it's you know it's a very important perspective to share. Yeah. Um, I wonder if it's online. I'll have to. I think it is. Yeah. Maybe we can put a link in the show notes or something. Sure. Yeah. I'll hunt that down if it's out there and, uh, include it. Um, so getting back to improvement takeaways, um, I mentioned a couple, um, end game studies, as I already mentioned, she, she gives it a lot of credit, uh, mentions it multiple times. And she had a quote where she says, my father considered solving to be very important because it requires concentration and accurate calculation, precisely what you need most during a practical game. Jen, what about the, the Shahadi method? Did you guys, I mean, obviously I was around, but I don't, did you guys do a lot of studies? I did. I did. I liked studies. That was kind of what got me hooked. I mean, I don't feel like I did enough of them at some point. I think I started, you know, giving it up for like tactics and opening and like end game strategy books. But I think there was definitely a moment where like end games got me hooked on chess. I know there was like an end game study book by Chernev that I got a hold of and I just became really obsessed because, you know, I'm more on the artistic side of things than a lot of chess players. I really love the the beauty of the game and the art of the game. And, and um, sometimes I've struggled a little bit with being as competitive. Depends on what stage I am in my life. Mm-hmm. But that I feel like that art side of it can be a real hook to kind of drag people in if they don't 
Yeah. Um, so that's like, I, I think studies is like a really important way to try to get people into jazz. Um, might, they might not be, you know, just a solver or a composer, but it could be a way to show them this other side of the game. Yeah. I have to admit, Jen, I mean, I've, you know, obviously doing this podcast, it's become, um, uh, I've, I've realized the import of doing studies a lot more than I did when I was just a kid playing, trying to get better, but not thinking about it so much. And I have to say, Jen, I mean, I try, but and you mentioned like what your situation in life is now. Now, when someone posts a study or if I pick up a book, I just I just can't sit there or I don't sit there for 15 minutes and figure it out. And I, I'm sure it's to my detriment as a chess player. But I I want to see the answer and I love the answers. But I, I have a hard time like David Howell, when I recently interviewed him, talked about how um, a friend of his presented a study and he thought about it for like just in his head, like when he was idling, not with the board set up, just thought about it for two days until he got it, you know? And I, I don't have that. Uh, I don't, I don't have that, um, that level of um, doggedness. Well, maybe that's because the studies you need for your, for like uh, your enjoyment need to be easier. I mean, like I, I don't see why I don't think studies have to always be hard. Like I put a study key in my Instagram recently that was pretty easy and that was intentional because I know that I have like a lot of poker players um, on my Instagram as well or like some kind of like you know maybe people who are slightly interested in chess but not hooked so I put like right. the last position it was actually the key so it was but I, I didn't put any of the preamble yeah um, because I knew that most of my followers wouldn't get it so I just want to give them that shiver of excitement of finding the final move and yeah, most poker players won't get it anyway. Let's be let's be clear. But even for like the chess players, like you know, maybe they're scrolling they're scrolling through their Instagram. Like maybe they just want to see want to spend one minute looking at the position and like finding the answer. They don't want to spend ten minutes. So uh, maybe that's something to think about. We don't all have to sit there looking at a position for twenty minutes. You maybe need one that takes five minutes. Yeah. Yeah, uh, thank you for making me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> and and there are some of that kind of thing in this book, by the way. Yeah, no, in the early chapters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she she drops a few studies in that are not related to her games, or like you mentioned with the notes, like she connects things. Like I saw this study, so I learned this position. Um, yeah, and I will say uh, whether or not I'm doing studies now, I definitely wish I did them when I was younger. <laughs> put it put it like that. Uh, one last um, improvement takeaway to to throw in is just um, she she does a really good job. She wrote down the time per move of she she mentions early in the book that one of her trainers told her to do that, and it turns out that if you write a chess memoir, it's it's uh, quite useful that she's able to say when someone's in time trouble, how much time someone spent on a particular move. And she mentioned somewhere that it helped jog her memory of like reconstructing what she was thinking at a given time. Um, so I would recommend that for tournament players. Um, that's easy enough for anyone to adopt. And I do think um, it, it can help in terms of uh, fleshing out your thought process, whether it was a good one or a bad one as you review a game. Yeah, absolutely. And um, of course, then the, the last one it We've already mentioned, but I can't be emphasized enough, is how important her family um, structure was for her success. And it, it's been mentioned many times that her being the youngest, she felt like was an advantage because not only was she able to learn from things that, you know, maybe uh, pedagogical things that could be tweaked 
obviously Laszlo and Clara had very good ideas. Those are her parents' first names, um, but they, they, you know, maybe even tweak them, even fine tune them a little bit more by the time Judah came along. Like one that I always thought was interesting. And of course I've already butchered in my own life mm-hmm. is that in the case of Sophia and Susan, they taught them like around three or four years old and that they decided to wait for Judah because, because Judith, because they thought like the, the first, like the three-year-old, it wasn't really like that useful because I guess, I don't know. I'm, I'm conjecturing that maybe the brain grows so much at those years that you might as well just start at five and not waste your time earlier. Right. So I thought that was really interesting. I, I couldn't help myself because Fabian sees chess pieces all around and like wants to know about them. Um, yeah. But I'm also not out to create a chess champion. So maybe I would have been more, I, I know I sound, you're a poker player, Ben. So I sound like I'm, I'm full of it. <laughs> I called him Fabian and he's playing Magnus Kingdom at three and a half. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, introduce them early and then see if they like it, you know? Yeah, but I, I thought that, that was just one random example that always stuck with me. Partly because we get asked all the time in our broadcast with me as Maurice, when should I teach my kid chess, right? And, you know, some parents calling with their baby in the lap. And right. they're like, when should I start? And I sometimes use that story that I heard about the Volgar sisters as a, like, oh, you know, may not, maybe you shouldn't start that early. Maybe you should wait till the grand old age of five. Right. Well, I mean, I believe Magnus <laughs> played his first tournament at eight, um, if I'm not mistaken, which just seems unfathomable <laughs> these days. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I'm grappling with the same thing with my four-year-old, but I've only shown her a couple pieces so far. So, um, yeah, my, my seven-year-old still, still not interested, but, um, but what, you know, there's plenty of interesting things in the world. Um, so yeah, we've already mentioned with chess improvement, it's, you know, it's not the best. It's not, I mean, if you're just all about improvement, uh, other, the main source is inspiration. Um, so I don't think we need to dwell on it too much. Obviously, we both love the book and highly recommend it. So um, do you have anything to add about like people who are really interested in optimizing every minute, Jen? Should they, do you think this book is still worthwhile? Um, I think if they are somebody who sometimes feels like an outsider or doesn't feel like anybody else, if it's because of their background or their gender or their age, um, this could be just an inspiring book to make them work harder. So yeah, again, inspiration. Yeah. Um, and in terms of quibbles, I kind of had to stretch to come up with, with quibbles, to be honest. I mean, um, the, the book is quite a joy. I mean, I would say there's game excerpts, which sometimes I found myself, like in the case of uh, Polgar Chilingarova, the game we mentioned, she just shows this famous combination at the end. So I found, you know, you can find the game online and of course I'll link to it. So that's what I ended up doing for some of the games because I, of course, like to see the the whole story very often. So that's one minor, minor quibble, but of course it's for very understandable reasons. I mean, this is a 375 page book and it's part of a trilogy. So, I mean, it, it would be even longer, much longer, obviously, if it included the entire games. Um, and the only other minor quibble I had was just that it ends kind of abruptly. I mean, she has lots of introspection throughout, but at the end, it's just kind of ends, which again, I think might be because this is part of a trilogy. So it may not have been like a real end as far as she was concerned. That's interesting. Cause I really like game excerpts. Although I would agree with you about that, that game, that the game of the century, just because it is such a great resource for coaches. Why not just slap the whole thing in there? It's all of 17 moves, right? But um, in general, I love excerpts. I'm a big fan of excerpts because 
I just like want to get to the juicy stuff. Um, I feel that way about my chess lessons too. Like when I give lessons, especially to kids who are like getting educated online all day, I'm trying to just make it very density packed with like the good stuff. So I try to shy away from full games and just show like excerpt, 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 like, you know, highlight, highlight, highlight. And yeah, so yeah. that doesn't bother me and it never has. But I think that might be a personality thing because I also I've noticed a lot of it's not really a level thing. I've noticed even like uh, there's just some some people, they might even be low rated, but they just always want to see the whole story. And right. it, it, it's it's an interesting kind of personality difference in chess that. Maybe I should like talk about it a little bit more because it's kind of interesting. Um, as for quibbles with the book, I I guess the only thing I would say is also kind of related to its strength, uh, which we talked about earlier, which is this like pure um, love of chess that kind of envelopes you when you read it. And that is it's absolute lack of negativity and resistance to set it up as a classic underdog story of her against the world. Like, yes, there are bits of that, but it's understated. You could easily see a documentarian or another biographer, if it wasn't an autobiography, just setting this up in such a way where they quoted a bunch of jerks who said horrible things about right, them right. and all the things that she couldn't do. And you saw her rise to success despite all the haters. It's not like that at all. And in a way, I, I love the book because it's very pure, but I also kind of wish that she'd done more of that because I think it would be even more popular because we live in such a sensationalistic world that I think it would have been like maybe clipped more or not clipped, you know, like uh, quoted more, photographed more, like if there was like more of that kind of drama and sensationalism. Yeah. And yeah, and certainly that stuff was out there. I mean, and it would have been hard for her to, to, um, to shield herself from it. Like she speaks fondly of Kaspara, for example, of course they later had this uh, touch move controversy as well, but it, like in 1989, he had a very disparaging comment about women playing chess, which to his credit, he has um, since sort of um, said he was wrong about, but yeah, she doesn't talk about stuff like that at all. Yeah. And uh, like I said, that's also a part of it. It's hard because it's like with anything, with so many things in life, a lot of times strengths are related to weaknesses, right? So um, great loyalty could be related to bias, right? So there's like, there's like a good quality and a bad quality that's like wrapped up into everything. And like the fact that she didn't, didn't do that made this book like a little bit more artistic and pure. But I also like in the beginning, you were saying you wish this, you think this book deserves to be even more popular. And like, from a publicity standpoint, like it's always that kind of stuff that gets people going because, you know, that's this is like one of the great um, stories of uh, of um, breaking barriers of all time. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it, it, it underemphasizing it to such a degree, I think maybe um, limited like the publicity in a certain way. But that 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 I think is very interesting because it's also, you know, her her being the youngest and maybe being shielded by some of those negative forces from her parents and particularly her oldest sister, Susan. Right. So, yeah. 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 Uh, her definitely, um, her, her family deserves a, a lot of credit for raising such a, um, you know, a great role model and ambassador for, for chess. 
Um, so I think that's about it, Jen. We've gone super long, of course. <laughs> no, no big surprise with a book that we both like this much. Yeah, well, it's fun though. It's been a great, it's been a great chance, and that this is exactly why I like podcasts, and particularly your twist on the podcast with books, because with all of these, like you know, interactions on um, social media, so many emails, so many projects, it's just nice to have a nice long chunky chat that goes beyond the um, immediate. Yeah, yeah, I, it's it's a lot of fun for me too, and this was a book I had you know, I had read once, but to be able to read it again, I mean, uh, you pick up so much more. And obviously without this podcast, um, I would have been on to cramming through the next book of whatever author I'm going to interview, in addition to trying to squeeze in some non-chess books and like some study of actual stuff I want to study. So yeah, it's it's been, it's been a lot of fun uh, getting ramped up for this. Well, thanks again, Ben. Thanks for having me on. And, um, you know, um, Maybe uh, maybe one day we'll do another book. Uh, wow, Jen, uh, be careful what you say. Because uh, <laughs> otherwise, how am I going to read a chess book, man? Yeah, you- it's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, before we let you go, we should mention that the, the modest payment that I offer to um, – to the person who helps me each month with this podcast. Um, still, it remains undefeated that they the person has offered to give it to a charity. And Jen, um, it was a shocking upset where, where you opted to, to send this money. Where will I be sending this money? Well, to our U.S. Chess online education and programs, and, and you know, w- which is helping us with our women's programs and help at-risk youth while um, a lot of people can't travel to tournaments or almost no one can travel to tournaments for the foreseeable future. So um, this is, this is really an important, important to me. And it's part of what I've mentioned multiple times on this podcast, which is doing those zoom classes with kids all over the country. I just get such, such great pleasure from it. And I'd, um, you know, love to see that continue getting support as us chess looks for ways to replace its over the board activities. Yeah, yeah, that's that's its own conversation, but I'm glad to glad to see US Chess um moving moving in that direction. Um and it's it's great work you're doing. So thank you Jen, um both for helping me out with this podcast and for all that you're doing for for US Chess. So on that note, we will let you go Jen and I'm going to um I'm going to drop in the blindfold chess puzzles, which yes, we have this month um after you hang up. All right, thanks again Ben. Hello again. I am back with the blindfold chess puzzles of the month. Before I get to them, I just wanted to mention that next month, I already know what book will be recaptured, and it will be The World Champions I Knew by Grandmaster Gennady Sasanko with Vyacheslav Nemec, a friend of the podcast. He has a blog called Chess Centrals that you guys should check out if you haven't already. But yeah, looking forward to that. He's one of my favorite chess authors. And this is one of those recaps that will have more of a historical bent than a chess improvement one. But yeah, it's a great book that I've already read once and looking forward to discussing. On to the puzzles. I managed to find two puzzles from Judith's book. The first one is probably about 1500 level. It is white to move and win. It's one of these pawn race situations in a king and pawn endgame. So here comes the position. So guys, get ready. Probably not as many people driving as did months ago. But make sure if you're going to try this, you're in a quiet and safe environment. And then uh, let's get to it. So 
Here we go. White's position is white has pawns on f4 and g5. White's king is on d4. And that's it for white. Black has their pawn on a4 and a king on b4. And that's it. So to repeat the whole position, white has pawns on f4 and g5 and their kings on d4. And black has a pawn on a4 and their kings next to it on b4. And as I always do in the show description, the description of where the pieces are just in the text. So if you want to double check it and conjure it in your head, you can. I'll also have a link to the diagram without an answer and the diagram with an answer. So however you want to approach this, you can find out what you need to know. So that was puzzle number one. Puzzle number two is significantly harder, although it is a mate and two puzzle. So you can probably trial and error your way through it if you're able to get the position in your head. So it is white to move and mate in two, I'm guessing 2100 level. It's from a Nimzovich study, I believe, but quoted in Judith's book. So white has a king on A1 and pawns on E3 and E5 a rook on h1, and a knight on c7. So once again, for white, that's a king on a1, pawns on e3 and e5, a rook on h1, and a knight on c7. Black, on the other hand, has a king on g7, a pawn on g6, knights on g8 and e7, and a rook on f8. Once again, Black has a king on g7, a pawn on g6, knights on g8 and e7, and a rook on f8. And it is white to move and mate in two. So that's going to wrap it up for this month. We'll be back on Tuesday with the interviews. And I hope you guys are all doing okay and being safe and take care of yourselves and catch you guys soon. Special thanks to my producer, Matthew Passy, and thanks to you all for continuing to listen to and spread the word about Perpetual Chess. You can spread the word on Twitter. Follow me. I'm at Beneficial1. You can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group and continue the dialogue about each interview after it is released. I also want to thank the people who've written a few new reviews on Apple Podcasts. That's good to see. Reviews on other podcast platforms and YouTube are also appreciated. But of course, most of all, I would like to thank the people who provide financial support to the show, especially these days as a lot of our lives are in upheaval. We're stuck at home. There's work changes and all that stuff. So it means the world to me that you guys have stuck with me and even in some cases added new support in these crazy times. So thanks. I really appreciate it. For anyone who's able to support, it is the Perpetual Chess Patreon page where you can donate through PayPal if you go to perpetualchesspod.com. So with that out of the way, first of all, of course, I would like to thank the sponsor of the show, Chessable. And I also would like to give extra special thanks to the following people and entities for their support. They include Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Apprentice Twitch Channel, Andrew Bach, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, I am Eric Rosen, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Natel, Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, 
Lorraine Dore, Lucio Casada Silva, the law offices of Stuart Katz, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zelazny, Moonmaster 9000, Peter Sodi, Reuven Fisher, Seattle Chess Club, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryan of StrongChess.com, Todd Kennedy, and I also would like to give thanks to the following people and entities, Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, FM Andre Tarakov, Andrew Perry, Aniti Deer, Better Chess Training, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wayne Scott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Courtney Fry, David Bleskachek, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsburg, Daniel Lucas of the U.S. Chess Federation, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Cramerly of Chessable.com, Douglas Matthew, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ethan Smith, Ian Mason, I am elect or possibly not I am elect, Donnie Ariel Esquire, Fox Valley Chess Club of Aurora, Illinois, Francis Latart Lavoie, Francis Tortoris, MD, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Hans Schutt, Harish Srinivasan, Jacob Kovach, Jacques Pari, James Aspinwall, James Banastia, James Murr, Jason Anfang, Jason Willem, J. Deep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, J.J. Stranod, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman of the U.S. Chess Federation, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jordan Goodwin, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Wrightforth, Laura Beljavsky, Martin Knudsen, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Alert, Miguel Araspati, Mike Clem, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Solin, Neil Bruce, Olaf Mueller-Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passan, and Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hollenbach, Rory Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Dougherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwater, Stefan Roller, WGM Tatia Vabrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Thomas Kolmanich, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Wayne Beam, William Brock, William Juniper, William Hogarth, William Peterson, FM Zhao Chang of Chess1000.com, and last but never least, Zhivko Soyanov. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I will catch you all soon. Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.